Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of INC Live. My name is Carl Bainbridge, still recovering from a cold, and I am joined by the man on the right-hand side of my screen. He is the uh, Starsky to my Hutch. He is the Cagney to my Lacey. It's John Martian. John, thank you very much for joining us. What's up, Carl? I like to think of us as like the Dudley boys. Uh, you, maybe you're Devon and I'm Bubba Ray, uh, but but we're back again. A uh, great pay per view going on this uh, Saturday. Um, you know, great main event. The, the undercard isn't so great, but the fact that we have two amazing title fights at the top uh, gives it you know a pretty good rating for me. So I'm looking forward to the pay per view, and I'm also looking forward to talking these fights with you. So it's good to be back on the INC Live channel. I think I'm more comparable to a Bubba Door because I can't get my words out. Or Spike. Spike Dudley. That might be you. <laughs> no, that's Joe. That's Joe. Oh, okay. All and right. Do, that, that's good. That's good. I do want to say a big thank you, though, to all of the hard work that Joe Neal has been putting in. He is the newest member of our team. If you want to catch any of his post-fight recaps, he'll be doing one just in the next couple of days for uh, Viva versus Rob Font, which we're really looking forward to. There might be a little bit of a Joe-related uh, invasion, as it were, when it comes to the live channel. I'll just leave it there, though. But he may very well be making his main card debut on that main channel and i want to say a big thank you to all of the hard work that he's put in this video is one that we're really looking forward to something a little bit different it's an idea i've had for a long time but i'll leave it there fingers crossed you enjoy it as much as we have putting it together and that has been exhausting i should say yeah, he has been doing a great job. I've been listening to like the recap videos, and he just brings a, a fun energy. You could tell that he loves fights, and he does a good job recapping the fights too. So make sure you guys are checking out those recap videos. Yeah, and if you want to continue supporting the channel in any way you can, you can do so through two means. First off, we have ourselves a Twitter page, which is twitter.com forward slash INCageFighting. So if you want to hear any more of my hot takes, uh, that's the best place to do it. And if you care enough about us, that you want to donate to the channel you can do so on our patreon page it's patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting john also has his own individual channel john where is the best place for people to go to if they want to hear everything that you have to say not only about the main card but every single fight the ufc horse this year yeah, so I make podcasts talking about every single fight, uh, talking mostly about the betting odds and, you know, analyzing all the matchups uh, on a finer level. So if you, you're interested in that, check out the Martian MMA podcast on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Uh, I do a show with my co-host, Ozzy, where we talk bets, and you could find that on uh, Martian and Ozzy on any of those platforms or Martian MMA. And uh, check me out on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC. And with that being said, let's let's talk some fights. We certainly will do, John. As you mentioned before, UFC 274. Uh, we have been very sort of hit and miss when it comes to some of the some of the main cards, some of the UFC pay-per-views that they've done so far this year. UFC often has this tendency, I feel, to really stack up the back end of the year. So when it comes to sort of like the winter months, January through to March, usually a little bit lacking. I think UFC 274, though, is a step in the right direction in terms of Two intriguing title bouts, both intriguing for their own respective reasons, which we'll get into later on in the show. Obviously, potential banger between Tony Ferguson and Michael Chandler. Outside of that, though, the undercard, the rest of the main card, as well as the prelim fights, not really the greatest. 
No, they're not. Uh, I'm still looking forward to a few fights. I'll go ahead and just shout them out on the prelims right now. Um, my boy Francisco Trinaldo is taking on uh, England's Danny Roberts. I think that should be a fun fight. Southpaw versus Southpaw matchup. Uh, Brandon Royval and Matt Schnell has the makings for a fun fight. And Randy Brown versus Chaos Williams. Really looking forward to that one as well. But no real star power on these prelims. Even the uh, the few main card opener fights, um, you know, they're, they're legends of the sport, but they're not really pay-per-view quality. Uh, U.S. price is $75 per pay-per-view. And all, that's basically $15 a fight to watch OSP and, uh, and Shogun Hua rematch and Joe Lozon and uh, Donald Cerrone. So you can make your own you know, judgment on whether that's worth the price. I'm glad you brought up some of those fights on the prelims. You can see those on our screen right now. And you covered a lot of the bases that I was going to as well. I think that Randy Brown versus Chaos Williams has the potential to be very entertaining. Uh, Chaos Williams, we know how explosive he can be very early on in the fight. Weird always seems to have this habit, you know, of guys who are just outside the rankings. People like the Nico Prices, the Randy Browns, Barbarina, etc. Who just out and out always deliver these banger fights. And this is another example of those. I think the UFC are very good at matchmaking these sort of sort of top 25, top 30 rated welterweights. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, Cass Williams does deliver entertaining fights. He's a striker. Randy Brown will likely oblige in that. And this seems like a clear candidate to me to put on the pay-per-view for an exciting fight. But sometimes the UFC, they put like their uh, a really good fight on like the 9.30 slot, the 9 o'clock slot on ESPN leading into the pay-per-view. I guess their thinking is that it'll inspire people to buy the pay-per-view. But come on, man. Everyone who who is buying that pay-per-view for $75, their mind is already made up. They're not going to watch Randy Brown and Chaos Williams. But, oh, I'll shill out $75. I mean, I just don't think the business model works that way. So I personally would take OSP and Shogun off the main card and put on Randy Brown and Chaos. I'd argue headlining the prelims is there used to be a time where if you weren't on the main card, you were seen as nothing. But I think that sort of attitude has changed recently. But the one that always sticks in my mind was when they put... I think they put Tuivasa and Arlovsky on 225's main card, and they put Curtis mm -hmm. Blades and Alistair Overeem as the ESPN headliner. And there was a lot of people thinking, well, you've got two lower-ranked heavyweights here. What are you doing putting them on the main card? But that's a showcase opportunity. I'd argue Randy Brown versus Chaos Williams is probably the fourth best fight on this entire card. So I, I can see where the UFC are coming from with this. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I don't want to criticize it too much because the fights just happen one hour after the other. So it's yeah. not that big of a deal. But, um, you know, uh, what what, uh, what are prelim fights are you most looking forward to? Well, you've got one of your boys fighting on the prelims. I've got one of my boys as well. Blagoy Ivanov is finally back. Like, honestly, one of the slowest fighters that you could come across. But it is almost impossible to knock out one of the best chins I have ever seen in MMA. And obviously, you look at some of the stuff he was doing in the World Series of Fighting, a very good champion for them. Actually holds a win over Tuivasa, which I don't think many people remember in this day and age. Um, he's taken on Rogerio de Lima, who I feel like a lot of him getting this opportunity to maybe break into the rankings stems mainly from what he did in his most recent fight, which is a very quick win over, I think, Ben Rothwell. But mm -hmm. you look yeah. at some of his other performances in the UFC, questionable. It's just a case of whether or not ring rust is going to affect Blagoy. But 
a heavyweight banger, which the USC are hoping to kickstart the ESPN portion of the prelims. Yeah, I mean, people should not forget, Blagoy had a really close fight with Derek Lewis not that long ago. Um, he's coming off a back-to-back split decision losses, so some tough luck, close fights in both of his recent fights. Um, but it'll be interesting to see whether Delima can create some chaos and find a finish, because he typically wins by finish, or Blagoy can lull him into that slow decision type of fight. Uh, but remember, Derek Lewis's advice for Blagoy Ivanov, try to punch him in that big old booty hole in his chest where that stab wound was from uh, the Bulgarian police force or something like that. So Blagoy is a legend. I'm glad that your boy is fighting on this card. It's been going quite well for some of my boys recently. Obviously, Raquel Pennington got herself a victory, Paul Craig recently. So I'm hoping Blagoy can get himself a win. I'm hoping uh, GM3 as well, because he's going to be in action as well. Yeah, GM3 will probably have already choked uh, GM uh, Jocko out by the time that people are watching this. But uh, yeah, a lot of boys in action recently. Yeah. Anything else just before we wrap up this portion of the prelims? Um, this guy, uh, Cletuson Rodriguez on the on the prelims. Watch out for him. I thought he was one of the best fighters to come out of the contender series last season. So keep your eye on him. I think he'll be a, an entertaining fighter that'll stick around for a while. Uh, sort of sneaky, low-level strawweight fight as well. Carnalosi versus Godinez. Carnalosi had an absolute banger with Naliang up on the UFC 261 card. So Hopefully, potentially, that could be a little sneaky good fight there for if you're tuning in on Fight Pass. I agree. Yeah, Loopy's pretty cool, too. So that does have the makings to be a good one. Yep. So we move on to the first fight on the main card here, and we go into the lightweight division. And we have got two legends of the sport who finally are going to be facing each other for the first time. It is Donald Cowboy Savoni taking on Joe Lozon. Cowboy is a minus 170 favorite for this one. These odds based on DraftKings.com. You can get your laws on a plus 150. Now to put into perspective how long these guys have been fighting. This will be Donald Cerrone's 55th pro fight and the 44th for Joe Lawson. And Joe Lawson started his career 2004, Cowboy back in 2006. Now I want to make it clear from the outset. I actually think this is really good matchmaking. The USC often had this tendency where if they had a guy who was past his prime, had a bit of name value, they would use that sort of last remaining part of his brand and feed that to an upcoming prospect. You look at like Paolo Costa versus Johnny Hendricks. That's the one that immediately comes to mind for me. So I think it's, it's smart for both parties to pair them against one another. And sometimes some of these old guy fights can turn out pretty entertaining. With that being said though, if this was Bellator and Scott Corker was asking people to pay $60, $70 to watch a fight card which had Donald Cerrone and Joe Lawson on it in 2022, people would be livid. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what the Bellator example would be like Pat Curran versus Daniel Strauss 6 or something like that if they put that on a pay-per-view, but... Um, yeah, I do agree. It's probably not quite pay-per-view worthy, but I do agree with the other points as well, that it is good matchmaking. These guys have been in the lightweight division together for literally 10 years, 12 years straight. I mean, Lozon made his UFC debut well over 15 years ago, I think. Uh, and Jens Pulver, I believe, which was a big upset at the huge, time. Huge underdog. Yeah, he was a short notice like guy who beat a former UFC champion as a huge underdog. Like one of the biggest upsets in UFC history. Um, but 
yeah, I mean, I love the fight for for 2022. Obviously, you know, you got to question whether these guys should still be, uh, you know, fighting or whatnot. But I think given the fact that they're both matched up with a guy around their same, uh, you know, past their primeness, uh, that that it'll still be an entertaining good fight. uh, First of all, Joe Lozon was the reason I got into MMA. Um, He used to be on like a a Call of Duty type of podcast called Painkiller Already way back in the day. And I I would listen to him there. I started watching his fights. And then I watched his first live fight against like Michael Johnson where he got destroyed in. But still, he was the guy who really got me into MMA. So I'll always be grateful for Joe Lozon. Definitely will be cheering for him in this fight. And uh, I'll pass it back to you before I get into my official prediction. Which way are you leaning here? Uh, you going with the favorite Cerrone, who hasn't won a fight in his past six fights, or are you going with Lozon, who hasn't even fought in two and a half years? I think it's a very tricky one to call, bearing in mind so many of the intangibles. I think, obviously, you mentioned before, Donald Cerrone's last win was May 2019. He beat Ally Kinta, which was a very, very good win. Maybe it hasn't aged all that well bearing in mind that Al's now at the sport. But there was a lot of people thinking Donald Cerrone was going on this one last run. I mean, he moved up to, I think, number four in the rankings. He got that fight against Tony Ferguson. And in my opinion, very competitive fight for the first round before Tony's conditioning started to take its toll on Cowboy and he pulled ahead come the end of the second round. I think for the longest time, you could say that Cowboy was getting away with fighting good fighters. They could say, yes, but yes, he's losing, but he's losing to Ferguson, Gagey, Connor, that sort of thing. There was something about the Alex Morono performance, though, and this is no disrespect to Morono, who could certainly kick me in if he wanted to. But there was once upon a time Donald Cerrone would not be losing to someone of Alex Morono's level. And I think mentally, that was the point the Cowboy sort of mentally retired. And if this, to me, feels like Cowboy saying, I'm going to have one last fight. I'm going to wait until we've got a crowd. And that's me going to be done. Whether or not Cowboy can recapture that magic, I'm not entirely sure. Here's the thing with Joe Lozon, just to go on sort of like the parallel. Cowboy looked washed against Morono, in my opinion. And even though Joe Lozon has been washed for a long time too, I still saw enough against Jonathan Pierce to make me think he can still just about pull it out. But that was a long time ago. This is a much older Joe Lawson since the last time he fought. I think it's really intriguing just for those elements of unknown. What I can say, though, is I don't expect this to be a classic. But I can expect something which is entertaining. I, what I can see this fight being is sort of Rampage versus Vandalay 4. A bit sloppy. Both guys well past their prime, but still enough entertainment to keep fans happy. I think it could be more like our boy uh, Shogun versus uh, Nog, too, that happened about a couple years back. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't have an exact great comparison for it, but I mean, I really agree with a lot of the points you made. Really good points you made there, Carl, um, about Cerrone uh, with Morono. That that loss was probably like one of the worst losses of his entire career. And he was a favorite in that fight. He was like the same price he was now. He was minus 170, minus 190. And Morono just strung a couple punches together. And, and Cerrone's chin was was not there. And that was at 170, guys. This mm. is at 155. So if his chin was, uh, you know, depleted and he was getting knocked out at 170 versus Morono, who is not a hard hitter, not a KO type of guy at 170, now he's cutting an extra 55 or 15 pounds. 
down to 55. That's got to be even worse for the chin. The only good thing for him is Lozon, not really a big puncher, um, more of like a club and sub type of guy. He'll hurt you with punches. He'll take you down. Um, but, I mean, Cerrone, I mean, his reactions, his chin is just not there. Got knocked out in round one in, like, three of his past five fights. He did have some decent showings against uh, Anthony Pettis and against um, Nico Price. And still didn't win any of those fights, but still decent showing. But, man, that, that Morono fight is just hard to get out of your head. And cutting down to 155 just seems like a really bad idea. So um, Lozon in his last fight against Pierce, which this win has aged incredibly. I think Pierce is undefeated since then. I mean, he finished Kai Kamaka. He, he finished um, all types of fighters. I'm blanking on the other guys' names right now. Um, but I think he's 3-0 and since then with three finishes. And, you know, Lozon, his win has just aged a lot better. So um, Pierce did drop down to 145, though, so I should say that. Um, but, you know, what Joe Lozon showed in that fight against Jonathan Pierce, I think translates well to Cerrone. He started fast. He came out aggressive. He started throwing punches. He he stunned JSP with a few punches. He, he was able to take him down and pound him out on the ground. So if Lozon starts fast... If he lands some punches, that could be, you know, a great recipe to, to catch the chin of Cerrone early before he can settle in the fight. And then Joe Lozon can maybe translate that into a finish. So you got to think that the early fight favors Lozon. If it's a finish, it'll probably be Lozon. But if the fight gets out of the first round, it'll probably favor Cerrone. Um, because before the Lozon fight against JSP, he was beat up pretty badly by Chris Gritzmacher, mm-hmm. you know, really badly you know tough to watch that fight and he also did get caught with a big punch by clay guida two guys not known for their not a cop power either so i mean there's a lot you gotta really tread lightly here but if you're getting one of these guys as a plus 160 underdog they're saying his chances are under 40 percent i think you got to go with the underdog here from a betting perspective and for my fan and my uh, analyst perspective i'm going with lozon too so i'll pick lozon to start fast hurt cerrone and uh, translate that into a finish I think you made a really good point about the fast start because um, obviously you mentioned before Cowboy does have a he's always so notorious for starting really slowly. We saw RDA exploit that. We saw Connor obviously big head kick knockout. Um, but also Joe Lozon. If there's one thing I saw from the Grootsmacher fight was he tired very quickly by the end of the first round. He actually started that fight very well. I went and watched it just do a little bit of research uh, building up to the preview show. He actually started the fight very well, but he did start to tie up by the end of the first round, and Groot's marker just kept continuing to put on the pressure, and eventually led to a doctor stoppage in the end of the second. So, if Lozon's going to win this one, it's going to have to be early, before mm. some of these age and conditioning issues start taking their toll. Because, as short as Cowboy is, as bad as his chin is recently, I do believe once he gets into the swing of things, the fight favors him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. But hey, I was at that Lozon versus Grismacher fight. And, you know, being such a big Lozon fan, I was excited to see him. I was cheering for him and everything. And then he started getting his ass kicked. And then this Russian douchebag in front of me kept like looking behind and like turning around and looking at me and like laughing at me. And he <laughs> Lozon was just getting killed out there. And this guy kept turning around and like laughing at me and smirking at me. I was like, fuck you, guy. Come on. It's Joe Lozon out there. Um, but yeah. That's my little story for it. But I, I agree with everything you said again. So this will be fun. Fun old man fight. This is definitely the the better of the two old man fights we got on this card. 
Well, it's a good thing you brought up the uh, first of two old man fights because we're coming to fight number two of the old man fights. Now, this is actually a rematch which took place in Uberlandia back in, I think, 2012, 2013, I think. It's Mauricio. You, you just Sh made that name up. There's no there's no place in the world called Uberlandia. Google it. <laughs> Um, it's Mauricio Shogun Hewer versus Orvin St. Pro. Now, anybody who remembers that fight, OSP ended up winning the fight by first round KO. They say first round KO, but I've always been of the belief someone threw a skateboard into the octagon and Shogun slipped on it. Clearly, I mean, everyone's seen that video. The skateboard got thrown in. I don't know how the ref didn't see it. Uh, but if you don't if you don't know what we're talking about with the skateboard, then you've got some research to do, my friends, because look at look it up OSP Shogun skateboard and you'll see what we're talking about. And another match involving two veterans of the sport, because we've got Shogun here who was in his 41st pro fight. It's going to be fight number 42 for OSP and Maurizio Shogun here made his debut 2002. So 20 years in the sport and. I was talking about to uh, one of my friends about this. We were talking about uh, some of the fights on the main card. Has Mauricio Shogun Hewer been the longest shot fighter in MMA history? Like most people yeah. saying, were saying this guy was done back in 2007. <laughs> and yet he, yeah, he yeah. is still fighting. He ended up winning a UFC title after his, his so-called so prime. And you have to remember for the longest time as well, Shogun was sort of like... He was in the light heavyweight top 10. Like DC was saying, hey, I might give Shogun a shot of my title. So he still had some sort of clout in the weight class. And then it just, the Anthony Smith fight happened. And I think most people have just been waiting for Shogun to retire. It, it's not been the most sort of glamorous way out. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, great point about, you know, longest shot fighter. I mean, I think the time where he was really, really past his prime was losing to John Jones. Um, and that was 11 years ago, so he's still treading along. But you got to give respect to the guy because he, at one point, was such a great fighter and has such a great foundation of skills that he's actually been able to stick around and win a few yes. tough fights due to him just being, you know, so historically great. So even though he is way past his prime, I've doubted him before. Like I picked uh, uh, Noguera against him. But, you know, he proved me wrong there. And, I mean, he's been in tough fights against, uh, like, Tyson Pedro, for example, where he got hurt real badly early on and was able to come back and finish that fight. Um, so the guy still has some grit left. But, I mean, man, just from the one Paul Craig fight to the next, we saw his yes. skills, you know, rapidly depleting. He's much easier to take down. His... Um, you know, conditioning isn't the greatest. You look to be tiring out in that Paul Craig from fight from all the grappling. And it seems like his grappling, his defensive grappling has depleted the most. If you're standing with him on the feet and just exchanging strikes, he can hang in there. But if I'm OSP, I'm really pushing that wrestling pace. Uh, kind of like he did against McCall Olajechuk, where he just came out wrestling hard from the first, you know, first minute of the fight, and he was able to slow um, McCall down by the round two and get him to tap out. So I think, I mean, if you saw how easy Paul Craig was getting those takedowns, OSP's got to think that's the right plan to do here. So, um, you know, very, very old man fight. I mean, this fight isn't even fun. I mean, at least Lozon versus Cerrone uh, will be kind of chaotic and fun. This is just going to be depressing, man. It's sort of like Gracie versus Shamrock 3. Yeah, it's, it's right up there. It's right up there, I'm telling you.
Yeah, uh, I think you made a really good point about some of the issues with Shogun's grappling uh, in recent years. Because if you go back and you watch this guy in Pride, like everybody knows him for like his striking ability, but he was a hell of a good grappler as well. And I think a lot of people have sort of forgotten that. He sort of recently he's sort of become this sort of like counter puncher. He's just happy to stay where he is, invite people to come onto him, and hopefully try and get himself a good few combinations, maybe a bit sloppy but be able to be effective with it to get by so it could be a bit tricky this one because i think that's some of osp's biggest strengths as well he's a very good counter striker but i know we're sort of crapping on shogun a bit here i want to make it clear this guy is an absolute legend of the sport i've got a list of some of the notable wins he has in his resume corby anderson three wins over little nog boris griffin leota machida chuck liddell mark coleman Two wins over Overeem, Kevin Randleman, and Rampage Jackson. That is a who's who of light heavyweight legends. Yeah, I mean, that's extremely impressive. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced they didn't, like, swap that Shogun out with, like, a different human being at this point because they're essentially two different guys who, who got those wins. Um, so we're dealing with, like, a shell. I mean, I, I do think it is a bit sad, even though I do completely respect him, his resume. I think it is a bit sad that he's still competing in 2022. I think, you know, the UFC should just take care of him, give him, you know, some money and, and not have him fight because it honestly makes their product look a lot worse having this type of fight on their card, let alone a pay-per-view main card where they expect people to pay to see it. So, um OSP, I mean, he's pretty far down the hill, too, as well. Um, he still definitely has a, a little bit more left in the tank than Shogun. Um, and that's what the odds are indicating here. OSP is a 2-1 to one favorite. Almost uh, maybe trending his way to a 3-1 to one favorite. So I, I guess OSP will submit him, and round two will be my pick. What would you say are OSP's biggest strengths and weaknesses? If he's going to win this fight, how do you see it happening? His biggest strength is going to be his, his butt. He, the guy has the biggest ass in all of MMA. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, uh, but uh, also Tyson Pedro, who returned last week, um, he told this great story where he was in the he was in a cage against OSP and he wasn't trying to look at his opponent. He wasn't trying to look at him, and then he finally looked at him and he goes, "That's not OSP. That's Ngannou over there." And then it was OSP, obviously, and he did uh, you know uh, tap. Pedro out in round one but i mean honestly osp is a unit this dude is uh a hell of an athlete and um you know i think he'll just leverage his athletic uh abilities at this point of his career he's much less far down the hill than than shogun so um you know what do you what are you thinking for how it's going to end i'm favoring shogun uh, not shogun i'm favoring osp um i don't think he's going to submit osp I'm getting the names mixed up here. I'm having a real off night. I'm going to blame the cold. Um, I think OSP is going to get it done by ground and pound. I could see something a bit similar to what happened against Paul Craig. Uh, I think Shogun has very good submission defense. Uh, so I know that OSP has the he's sort of like template of the Von Flew choke. I don't see Shogun falling for that one. He's too savvy. Um, thing with OSP is, even though he is a little bit shot himself, I mean, we're looking at a guy who's about 30, 37, 38 years old. He still carries a lot of power. We saw that when he fought Alfonso Menafield. He can time those counter strikes perfectly. I think if Shogun does have a chance, I think OSP's habit of throwing with power comes at the detriment of his setups. He doesn't set up his shots very well. 
So I think Shogun could maybe capitalize on that. But this would be... This wouldn't even be a competitive match with a prime Shogun. But I think Shogun is just well past his prime right now. And I can see OSP... I'm going to say a second round ground a pound. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if, if eight years ago Shogun was too far past his prime and got knocked out, you got to think... You know, history could repeat itself or or they're both so far past their prime at this point that they actually might even itself out a little bit. And we might actually see a competitive back and forth fight. How funny would that be if it was like a competitive decision or like it's a anybody's fight, a split decision? That would be, that would be great. Um, but I think we've said enough about this one. Yes. So we'll move on to fight number three. We're going to the lightweight division and we have got Michael Chandler taking on Tony Ferguson here now. The betting odds for the first two fights, sort of old man fights on the card, fairly competitive on the whole. This isn't the case for Chandler versus Ferguson. Minus 410 with DraftKings for Michael Chandler, Tony Ferguson plus 310. Now, I think it's safe to say, John, this would have been a dream matchup, say, four or five years ago. Does it still carry as much weight in 2022? No, it does not. Um, because Tony Ferguson is uh, rapidly deteriorating. Um, I mean, if you watch the, the, from the Kevin Lee fight to the Cerrone fight, to, I mean, each fight he he, he shows uh, more and more signs that he is slowing down. And his past three losses, I mean, just been dominated bell to bell. His confidence, that one 12-13 fight win streak confidence is is gone. He took a life-changing beating versus uh, Justin Gaethje. I mean, that was the first fight, first card with the, uh, you know, the pandemic and where you could hear the punches landing in HD. And, I mean, just a brutal, hellacious beating he took there. Um, and then... He didn't take much damage in his past two fights against Oliveira and against uh, Daryush, but just dominated in the grappling for every second of those fights. I mean, he was 30-24 by both of those guys. Um, so, I mean, Ferguson, his his boxing defense has always been questionable, but he's always been tough enough, and he's always been high output enough to kind of uh, make it close despite not having traditionally good boxing defense. His takedown defense has never been good, but he's always been able to scramble and use his submissions. But th those abilities to make those chaotic fights are, is just – it's just gone at this point. So, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I think the odds kind of are right because Ferguson was a two-to-one favorite against Gaethje, which was obviously wrong. He was a, a favorite against Oliveira, and then he was only a slight underdog to Darius. So I feel like the betting market has kind of been way off on Ferguson in his past three fights, and now they're kind of correcting themselves by having him as a three-to-one underdog against Chandler. But as crazy as it is, I think it is right. How much of Tony's recent downfall has been father time and how much of it was the Gagey fight? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's a combination of things. So I, I got to give the guy some slack is I, I did at one point really like Tony Ferguson. I, um, obviously you still have to respect his career as a whole. Um, but you know, the, he's, he's come down to earth a lot in his past three fights. And, uh, I think, I think that he was already kind of starting to slow down uh, before the Gaethje fight. Um, and to this day, I think Gaethje was one of my biggest MMA bets of all time on on uh, against Ferguson there. Um, so 
that'll always be a fine memory. But that's kind of where I, I flipped the switch on Tony. I used to really like him, but then just I was so uh, heavily endorsing Gaethje and just to see it to come to fruition and to see Gaethje beat him up for five rounds was so satisfying to me that now, um, you know, I kind of just don't really have much love for Ferguson left. I think he's just too far past it to to really like the guy. Um and so, yeah, I'll say it's a bit father time. I mean, he is also facing elite fighters. I mean, he's fighting yes. the top three guys at lightweight, but they're giving they're giving him no favors. Obviously, the UFC, what you were talking about earlier with the the Johnny Hendricks Borchina example, they're obviously not trying to give this guy a layup. They they don't like the UFC historically never really liked Ferguson. You know, twelve fight win streak. He never got a chance to the undisputed title, um, but. They're giving him like a hellacious puncher, a great wrestler with knockout power, with good boxing. I mean, they could they have a hundred lightweights on the roster that they could try to give him somebody easy, but they're not trying to do that. They're trying to give him somebody as hard as possible, which is pretty fucking cruel, if you ask me. Um, but uh, I'll pass it back to you. What, what are you thinking about this one? Well, my personal choice, if I had to choose Tony Ferguson's opponent after, um. After what happened against Benny, I would have gone for someone like Gamrot. Someone that's sort of like 11, 12 sort of range. That's still that's still tough, man. I would have given him someone in like the bottom 50, honestly. Like I would have given him like seriously like one of the worst fighters on the roster. Just to get it get a win back, get his confidence back a little bit. I mean, this is this is seriously messed up that they're giving him Chandler here. Um UFC Fight Night Ferguson versus Mike Jackson. There you go. Sign, yeah, yeah. Give let's get Dean Barry or something like that. Uh, I mean, there are a ton of guys uh, on the roster who I think Ferguson could beat, even though he's this far past his prime. But man, Chandler is tough. We haven't even really talked about Chandler's skill set for this one, but uh, and we will do that right now. Then Michael Chandler, twenty-two and seven. Obviously, his last fight was a fight of the year contender up against Justin Gagey. I'm going to start by framing this though with a bit of a. A lot of people might sort of sort of shrug their shoulders or raise their eyebrows at this question. Has the Michael Chandler experiment worked? Because we're into his fourth fight in the UFC. All three of them so far have been have had big talking points, the big knockout up against Dan Hooker, and obviously uh, two great matches with uh, Charles Oliveira and Gagey. But he is one and two in those three. The Dan Hooker win hasn't really aged all that well. And if Tony was to pull off the upset, suddenly we're looking at this guy thinking, is he a little bit of a bust? I think it I think it's been a success. Um I mean they have to you have to contextualize his run. They gave him at the time Hooker, who was like the fifth ranked lightweight, uh Oliveira, who was like one or two or three, and then they gave him uh, Justin Gaethje, who was again top three, so they're giving him consistent top five guys, and you know this is I, I'll I'll bitch about the UFC for this. I mean they I don't think match made Chandler right after he lost to uh, Oliveira. I would have given him again a top maybe fifteen to twenty five guys somewhere. I don't know who exactly, but um, they should have given him someone who is is relevant, but it also isn't top five, top ten. They, but Again, they're just throwing him to harder and harder fights. And, man, they're giving this guy no breaks. He's, I think, made really well uh, a good account of himself, obviously knocking out Hooker. He dropped Oliveira in round one before getting knocked out himself. And then he had that barn burner versus Gagey where he clearly lost, but, uh, you know, made uh, made that fight entertaining, uh, you know, historically great fight. Um, so I think it's been a success. What yeah. about you? 
And it's really interesting for me to say, like, we talk about how Tony Ferguson is shot at 38. Michael Chandler's 36 and still feels like he has a lot of mileage in the tank. I just think it's really surprising that given both men, they've had the same amount of fights around the same sort of age, both had incredible wars over their career, yet one is seen as passive and shot and the other one is still a relevant part of this weight class. Mm-hmm. Well, their, their steroid regimen is definitely different. I'll tell you that for sure. <laughs> Chandler's got the better regimen. Um, and you got to think, we got to remember Ferguson had that knee injury that, yes. you know, I think he had a real bad knee injury. Then he also self rehabbed it. He came back to the UFC just like six months after that. So, I mean, you got to think that that could have had an effect on his career too. So uh, I think Chandler it, fights better than his age, quite frankly. So, um, Getting down to my analysis, I mean, I think Chandler's going to knock his head off. I do. I mean, if you watch the, some of the blows that Chandler landed against Gaethje in round one, I don't think Ferguson's absorbing those same shots well. Um, Ferguson isn't going to be able to take Chandler down. Chandler's the better wrestler. If anything, Chandler will be the one taking him down. And Chandler might be able to just take him down and lay on top of him like like Ferguson. And, uh, I mean, like uh, Dariush and uh, Oliveira did. Obviously, Chandler doesn't have that same top position game. But he has taken guys down and just laid on top of them for, for multiple rounds before. Uh, like Brent Primus, for example. So I think Chandler can win the fight if he wants to wrestle or if he wants to box, he's going to, you know, hit Tony with some nasty punches. And, uh, you know, I hope it's not another sustained, you know, beating for Ferguson where he gets his ass kicked for the whole fight. I hope he just, you know, eats a punch and goes down without having to, you know, take a sustained beating. Uh, but I think Chandler is knocking him out. And we're back. You can actually see our pretty faces again. I want to apologize to everybody who uh, had to sit through just audio only. There was a lot of tech issues on my part, so I'll hold my hands up and say apologize for that. Hope it didn't stop your enjoyment of the preview show. As mentioned before, we are in the middle of talking about uh, Tony Ferguson versus Michael Chandler. And we're going to get on the subject of Tony Ferguson because, John, you are sort of very pessimistic about his chances going into this fight. If there was something that's sort of like the Tony Ferguson fans can look towards and say, hey, Tony does have a chance of winning this fight. What do you think is his best avenue avenue to winning this match? Yeah, I think he's going to have to snatch a sub somewhere. I, I don't see him being able to compete in the striking. That same, you know, boogeyman type of striking style. He's walking forward and throwing those teeth and straight punches, and he eats one shot and gives two back. I think that version of Ferguson is gone. I don't think that the physicality or his durability is just there anymore to the point where he can sustain that type of style. So I don't see him having a success in the striking. I don't think he's going to end up on top of Chandler and win two out of three rounds to, for a decision. So it's going to have to be a submission. He's going to have to snatch a guillotine, a sub, or I mean a, a Darce, uh, an anaconda, some sort of front choke, maybe if Chandler shoots in for a takedown. But I don't know. I think that outside of a submission, I, I can't see Ferguson winning the fight. And even a submission seems quite unlikely to me. So I think the odds are right here with uh, with Chandler being a 4-1, to one, 80% favorite. If there's one thing that I've noticed for myself is that for whatever reason, Chandler seems to have this tendency to get hurt by strikes, which might look pretty sort of like, how should I put this? They don't look like damaging strikes when they're first thrown, yet for whatever reason, he seems to feel them. Like, we all remember what happened against Brent Primus. Primus threw that leg kick, and Chandler was just pretty much 
dead on arrival by that point. Uh, you could argue that Charles Oliveira did the same thing, which is a quick left hook, and it just completely caught him off guard. Same thing against Will Brooks. And we all know how funky Tony Ferguson's striking can get. Is there the possibility of Tony just throwing like this wild spinning back fist and that just being enough to throw Chandler a little bit off guard? I mean, it's it's not out of the realm of possibilities, but when, when you watch uh, Chandler absorb those massive punches and leg kicks and nasty type of strikes from Justin Gaethje for 15 minutes straight, and he was able to make it to the, to the decision there, it seems illogical for Ferguson's type of strike to hurt him when he's not even a big power striker himself. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that being too possible. For me, there's... There's an easy way for Michael Chandler to win this fight. He saw how Charles Oliveira beat uh, Tony Ferguson. He saw how Benny did the same thing, which is just take him down and just wear on him for the 15 minutes. And I, I did actually find it quite concerning considering how good Tony Ferguson's guard game was and his ability to scramble and get back to his feet that in these past two matches, we've seen guys who just completely neutralize any kind of threat that he has. So Michael Chandler, who has this great wrestling background, is more than capable of doing the same thing and just grinding it out. But Chandler does like, I think he enjoys the actual experience of actually punching someone and knocking someone out. And I think he's going to go in there to try and stop Tony Ferguson because of the status that has. I, I, I think Gage is the only person to stop Tony Ferguson. So Chandler being the second man to do that, that's going to be a feather in his cap. Yeah, I think so too. I think he's gonna. I don't think he's going to go with that wrestling heavy game plan, which could work. But I think he, the striking is honestly could be even easier than the wrestling. So Chandler has two avenues to win, and I'll, I'll pick him to win by knockout in the second round. I'm gonna say at the end of the first round. I think it's gonna be one of those situations. I don't think he's gonna one shot Tony. I don't think it's gonna be a knockout like that. I can see a situation where Tony gets hurt. Chandler prides him up against the fence, tees off on him, and then Herb Dean steps in and says, that's it, you're done. It's a good pick, yep. Yep. Call main event time, and we are going to our first women's title match of 2022. And of the title fights which are planned, it's arguably one of the most intriguing. It's Rose Namajunas, who is defending her belt up against Carla Esparza. Now, this is a title fight which, in my opinion, and this is purely based on storylines... It's arguably one of the best stories that the UFC have done. So I'll, I'll give people a little bit of history lesson here. 2014, in December, the UFC crowned their first ever strawweight champion on the 20th season of Tough. So we have Carla Esparza, reigning Invicta champion, taking on Rose Namajunas, who's like 21 years old, has a 2-1 record. Carla wins that fight, third round submission. And from that point on, she suffers a few, she, she goes on a bit of a lull. Like, she loses Yuanu in quite comprehensive fashion, falls down the rankings, and most people think, ah, you're just a relic. You're just this one-dimensional wrestler, and all of these evolved strikers are going to piece you apart. Out of nowhere, she goes on this second win. Five straight victories, beats a truckload of unbeaten, flashier knockout artists, and just slowly grinds her way back into the title picture. And the person waiting for her in this title fight is the girl she beat eight years earlier. That, to me, is a fantastic story. Yeah, I agree. Very, very well-written story. Um, I, mean, I mean, obviously, it's not written, but uh, it seems like like a WWE type of story, right? Where, like, the rematch is happening eight years down the road, and there's actually a good story behind it. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's... 
it's very intriguing. You know, I think Rose has rose uh, to a really high popularity. Um, you know, she's getting wide uh, mainstream recollection, I'd say, for her past few wins. Obviously, the big head kick over Ioana. Uh, the crowd was very behind her in the New York City uh, decision that she got over Zhang as well. Um, so I think Rose has uh, risen to a pretty high popularity. And Carla has kind of stayed, you know, uh, a little underrated. She's been the underdog in several of her fights. She was the underdog to Yan Shanann, who she just absolutely demolished, took her down, ground and pounded her, kept her down, just bell-to-bell uh, -bell domination from Carla Esparza there. And it's a good possibility that Carla Esparza is at her best that she's ever been. Even though she's had a longer career, she's the veteran in this matchup. And there's no doubt that Rose is at her best of her career, but I think Carla could still be operating at her best, and she's gotten a lot better along these years. So, I mean, it's a really intriguing matchup. And I think as well from Rose's perspective, we talked about Carla's side of this story. Rose has a pretty good one as well. Like, obviously, in that first fight, that was like a fourth pro fight when she fought for the belt. And you could see that she had a lot of potential, very talented, but incredibly green. And in the eight years since, we've seen her mature and evolve into, as you mentioned before, a popular, well-regarded champion who has beaten every other strawweight champion in the division's history except Carla Esparza. So there's that element of it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's her last piece of uh, last piece of the puzzle. She, she'll get her revenge, and then she'll have a win over every uh, strawweight champion, which is quite the accomplishment too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's quite the matchup. Quite uh, the story. I think it's happening at the right time. Uh, I think you and I were pretty vocal about uh, criticizing the UFC for giving uh, Zhang a rematch. But after we saw their, their second fight, and it ended up being a close decision, um, it, you know, two rounds to two, one round decides the fight, one moment decides the fight. It was a really close decision. Zhang made a good account of herself, and I think that that was a pretty deserving rematch after all things were said and done. So I, I'm glad uh, we got to see the rematch, and now uh, I'm glad Rose won, obviously, and now we get to see the uh, the real rematch between Esparza and Rose uh, that everyone's looking forward to. Why do you think the UFC have been so reluctant to go with the Call of Sparta rematch? Because we've mentioned before how great the story is from both ladies' perspective, yet for the longest time, the UFC seemed very hesitant to actually go ahead and give Carla the title fight. It, it sort of, it reminds me a little bit of what happened with uh, Damian Meyer, where for the longest time, they really hesitated on giving him the shot at uh, Tyron Woodley, and then eventually just had to give in and say, okay, here you go. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense from like a, a business perspective. Carla isn't extremely popular. She's not particularly uh, exciting uh, as a personality or in the cage. I mean, she is a wrestler. She is looking to get the fight to the ground and, you know, grind things to a halt. So that's not the most exciting style. Rose is more of a dynamic striker uh, who can mix in the grappling. Um, so I understand why. Um, and then she's also just like not that great looking of a woman too, which, which does play into some things. Um, but she's going to be looking awfully good on Saturday night with that belt wrapped around her waist. I got to say, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll be cheering for Carla. Um, so I'll pass it back to you before I get into my analysis of, of the actual matchup. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, I think this fight is going to come down to the wrestling and, but I think we all know the way that the Carla Esparza game plan works these days, which is going for the takedown. It's okay if you don't really do all that much when you're on top. As long as you keep control, which Carla has always been very, very good at, you're able to just grind out these decisions. And 
it almost sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, Glover versus Yarn, where I even said before that fight that that could very well come down to what happens in that first takedown. If Glover is able to get Yarn down without any sort of issue, he has a very good chance of winning the fight. And I feel the same way. If Carla can get the first takedown on Rose and keep her there, she more than has the confidence to get two more. And she only needs three in theory to win this fight. But if Rose is able to stuff that first takedown or get back to her feet, we could see Carla go into herself. Like, obviously we saw what happened against Ioana. Carla actually got the takedown very early on against Ioana. But once she got back to her feet, you could see her body language sort of say, well, what do I do now? She's got back to her feet. Wrestling was my only way of winning this fight. And she got pieced up. And we could very well see the same thing happen if Rose is able to like, get back to her feet and tee off on her. Yeah, so I'll actually slightly disagree with that there because I think it's more than just about the first takedown because if you go back and watch their first fight from 2014 um, – Carla did get a few early takedowns there, and I think Rose was able to stand up relatively quickly from the first two or three takedowns, but in halfway through round two, you saw Rose kind of settle on bottom, go full guard, and that's when she finally got stuck on bottom, and that's when you know her confidence uh, kind of evaporated and that's where the momentum really started to take over for Carla. So I don't think it's going to come down to necessarily the first takedown. I think it'll be, you know, I mean, I'm really interested to see what type of strategy Rose uses once she gets taken down, because I have very little doubt in my mind that she will be taken down in this fight. It's just a matter of can she get back up to her feet or does she settle in that full guard and lay on her back for a, full, a few minutes? And based on the early wrestling success that Zhang had in the rematch, I actually hadn't remembered this until I rewatched the fight last night. That uh, Zhang had a lot of success with her wrestling early on in that fight. And, you know, Zhang is not really a traditional wrestler. She maybe had a few upper body clinch takedowns in the UFC so far, but she wasn't really known for shooting on the leg, shooting a double, a single. And she did that in that fight several times and, you know, looked good doing so. Got Rose down to the mat. Um, and even in round three of that fight, don't, don't forget that, that Zhang got a takedown, she got a back take, and then she transitioned to mount right at the end of the round there. So, I mean, Zhang was in mount landing strikes, and, you know, if another 30, 60 seconds happened there on top, we could we could have saw Zhang finish that fight on top there. So, it, I can't stress enough how close that uh, Zhang versus Rose fight was. Um, Zhang won rounds one and three clearly. Rose won four and five clearly. Uh, round two was the deciding round. And, uh, you know, what happened earlier in the round was Zhang hurt her with a punch. Uh, and then Rose got a late takedown at the end of the round to kind of steal the round backs. But if that if that happened opposite, say Rose hit an early takedown in the round and then Zhang hurt her with a punch at the end of the round, the judges would have certainly given that one to Zhang. So, I mean, that fight really came down to... 30, 60 seconds of time in that round two uh, where Rose stole it. So that fight was so, so close. And I think that Rose has still showed a lot of susceptibility to getting taken down in that fight, which I think really favors Carla and us Carla fans on Saturday night. I was very concerned with the poor takedown defense that uh, Rose showed in that fight, especially bearing in mind, yes, Whaley was training with Cejudo. So obviously wrestling was almost expected to be a part of her arsenal. Do you think that maybe sort of played a part in Rose's performance against Whaley? That maybe she wasn't prepared for the wrestling heavy game that she had. Whereas this time around, 
we know what Carla's going to be doing. We know it's going to be very wrestling heavy, and she's going to be a little bit prepped, prepped a little bit better than she maybe would have done for Whaley. Yeah, I do think a little bit was like an element of surprise. Um, but still, the the reactions that she showed once she got taken down, I think were still pretty poor. And that's what's going to translate to this matchup. Even if she knows Carla is is coming to take her down, it's about what she shows on the ground after she gets taken down. And I, I saw enough weaknesses against Zhang that um that I still have reason to believe that that uh, Carla can win here. But if I'm Rose and Rose's coaches, I'm I'm literally only wrestling for this fight, like in, in terms of a training camp. Like there's no doubt about it that Rose is the better striker than Carla. Carla really not too effective on the feet. Uh, I mean, uh, she should stay Rose should stay sharp with her striking and everything, but she really needs to focus like 80 90 percent of her time on wrestling because that's what this fight comes down to it is about defensive wrestling and it really comes down to rose's strategy too because if she comes out with that same uh nonchalant relax you know she feels her opponent's out she stays at range she looks to pick her punches that's going to allow Carla to bring the pressure to her and to get those takedowns. But if we, if Rose comes out aggressive and high volume, like she did against Andrade in the first fight down in Brazil, remember Rose came out like a bat out of hell in that fight, landing, you know, nasty punches, showing off her really good boxing. So if Rose comes out aggressive, gets in Carla's face and starts landing punches, we could be in trouble. But if she comes out with that same boring or, you know, nonchalant type of style where she's picking her strikes, then I think Carla could get her down. And also as well, I have noticed with Carla Esparza is when you start putting the pressure on her, she doesn't like it. Like, the, obviously, everyone brings up Ioana, but also Alexa Grasso in the third round. When Carla failed with a couple of takedown attempts, Grasso started raiding her, and that could have very easily been a 10-8 round for Grasso in round three of that fight. Yeah, she does She does do that, and she can maybe slow down a little bit in round three. Um after she wrestles hard for a few rounds. So I, I'm concerned about the later rounds as a, as a Carla fan here. I think that she has a great chance to win the first one, two, maybe even three rounds. But those last two to three rounds are going to favor Rose. Rose has been in five round of fights. She was in a tough back and forth with Joanna. She was in a tough back and forth with Zhang, where she pulled out uh, some big late rounds in those fights. Um, so I think that the the five round and cardio advantage definitely goes to Rose, but that doesn't mean that Carla can't get out to a three zero lead with her takedowns mm. here. So look out for that. Yeah. What sort of threat do you think Rose offers off her back? Because there is a big possibility that Carla is going to be able to get the takedowns, possibly hold her down there. Because I'd make an argument that one of the big tipping points in the Wei Lee fight was Rose's ability off her back because she was landing elbows, she was trying for submissions. And when Rose was taking Whaley down by comparison, Whaley seemed a lot more content to just sit there and ride out the round. Yeah, I don't think she offers much of a threat off her back, but I don't see why Rose could possibly get on top here. If she maybe shoots her own takedown, I think she should get on or she could get on top here. Um She's not a bad wrestler of her own right. So uh, I definitely think that Rose has more ways to win the fight. That's why she is the favorite. She's a deserved favorite here. She can win via striking. Uh, she can win, you know, with her cardio. She might even be able to get on top. While, while you know, Carla, her wins needs a takedown. I mean, uh, multiple takedowns and Carla win is directly correlated. She really cannot win without multiple takedowns. So, I mean, it's 
it's she's the the rightful underdog here, but I'm still going to trust and pick her as the underdog. Uh, I mean, I think the odds are currently like plus one sixty five, which is like thirty six, thirty seven percent. I mean, Carla already beat her. Um, she ha- is looking. She hasn't slowed down one bit, right? She's still winning fights against tough competition. Rose still shows some defensive wrestling weaknesses. So I just don't understand why Carla is a 37 percent underdog uh, when I think the writing is on the wall that she should be more like forty five percent or something like that. So I would give her just the slightest of underdogs, but I'll still be picking Carla, the Cookie Monster, to get it done. I'll go with forty eight forty seven decision. Should we read anything into the fact that Rose is unbeaten in rematches? No, because if everyone knows that if Andrade rematch was a five round fight, that she would have lost that fight. Um, and then the 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 Joanna fight that comes down to a, a takedown in the last thirty seconds of round five, um, and the the Zhang fight it comes down to a, a thirty second takedown in round two. It's not like she's blowing these women out of the water. She's literally winning by a tiny tiny thread. She won a twenty nine twenty eight split over Andrade, and then she won uh, a split decision over. Zhang, and then she won uh, unanimous, but still really close decision against Joanna. So I don't think that number means too much. Normally, I play quite safe when it comes to my predictions. We're going to have a new UFC strawweight champion. I'm in the same boat as you. I can see Carla Esparza grinding out a decision here. Let's go, Cookie Monster. I'll pick her. I'll pick her to win rounds one, two, and four. Like she'll she'll win the first two. She'll take a little bit of time off in round three. The tide is gonna look like it's turning, but then Carla will go right back to winning in round four and secure that decision. And let's say we we sort of mentioned before that obviously the UFC have more investment in the idea of Rose being champion over Carla. But I'm looking at some of the potential matchups coming up after this fight. If Rose was to win, we'd probably be looking at either Marina or a trilogy fight with Andrade. Both very good matches, don't get me wrong. If Carla wins, that field gets opened up straight away because you have Whaley, fresh matchup, Andrade, fresh matchup. Joanna has that win over Carla, so she's going to be thinking, hey, I'm right back into the title mix here. And then you've got Marina, who lost a very close fight against Carla. Many people believe she won that. So she's going to have a claim to it as well. I think the field gets a lot more interesting with a Carla victory, in my opinion. I agree, too. A lot more. Uh, it's interesting, though. From I think the UFC, the, like Rose is kind of their girl. They want her to win. But they also are kind of running into a little bit of a wall. Uh, like you were saying, she's already fought all these women twice. So where does she go? I guess Marina Rodriguez is the next challenger for sure. Uh, but I think there's more uh, new matchups and fights uh, for Carla. So I think it's kind of a win-win for either for either woman for the UFC from a business standpoint. The last fresh matchup that uh, Rose had, I believe, was Michelle Watson. Because she's had the two Yuana fights, two Andrade fights, two Whaley fights, and now a Carla rematch. Yeah, I mean, that's the WME era. They love rematches. We we complain about it often here in the INC Live program, but just that's the way the UFC likes doing things nowadays. They love rematches, trilogies, quad, the first quadrology or whatever in the UFC is going to happen. So uh, we're not too big fans of that, but it's just the way it is. So mental note, if you're listening to this one, Rose versus Carolina 2. You'd probably love to see Carolina get her ass kicked like that, wouldn't you, sicko? No, just kidding. Ah, I love Carolina. <laughs> it's just 
we're, we're making a big deal about Rose avenging all her losses. That's the only one she doesn't have. Oh, yeah. Like, Carolina is her stepping Struve. Well, Carolina would get severely hurt if she if she took that fight. So let's hope that she doesn't. Enjoy retirement, Carolina. Main event time, we are going up to the lightweight division and to one of the most eagerly anticipated title fights of the year. It's Charles Oliveira, our reigning champion, who is taking on the former interim champion, Justin Gagey. Bookmakers for this one have Oliveira at minus 165. You can get Gagey at plus 145. And I'll start off this discussion by asking you a question, John. Did Charles Oliveira's win over Dustin Poirier at UFC 269 finally legitimize him as a champion? My answer is definitely yes, he did. Because I just want to make a point here, and I've got to hold my hands up and apologize because I was one of those people. There were many out there when Charles Oliveira won the title, beat Michael Chandler at 262, who sort of saw him as a, a bit of a placeholder champion. Not because they thought he was bad or he, or he had a weak skill set, but because his road to the title, bearing in mind that Khabib had just retired, Michael Chandler was a bit of an unknown when it came to the UFC. He sort of like, dare I say, sort of looked his way into the belt without fighting the elites, without fighting the Dustin Poiriers or the Justin Gages of the world. And seeing him beat Dustin Poirier, who a lot of people had already ordained as the future lightweight champion it made a lot of people realize and say hey this guy is incredibly talented and more than worthy of holding that belt yeah i mean i i, I agree i mean i was in that same category i mean no shame to admit it um what i will say though is um everyone knows that the connor versus poirier 2 the one that took place at 257 that was for the real lightweight championship khabib had already retired the ufc was stuck up on him coming back even though he never was going to come back and that should have been for the lightweight championship so essentially poirier won the championship in that fight um Oliveira beat uh uh, chandler for the interim and then they fought for the the real the interim versus the real champ and uh Charles solidified himself as the undisputed. So, uh, I mean, he needed that win big time to solidify himself, and he did. I mean, he fought through adversity really well, and, I mean, it was a, it was a great comeback win from him. So um, I'll give him uh, some credit for that. But part of me also does feel like uh, Poirier kind of let that fight slip through his fingers in, in a sense. Uh, round one, um, Poirier was out striking Oliveira. He was able to stuff his takedowns. He hurt him a few times, maybe even a brief kind of knockdown type of thing. And in round two, Oliveira got a brief takedown. He was on the back of Poirier, and then he fell off. And then instead of disengaging, getting away from the grappling, Poirier tried to land some ground and pound. He got tangled up. He got swept. He ended up on bottom, and then the fight completely changed there. But if Poirier just stepped back and just didn't engage in the ground there, it could have been a whole different fight. It could have, you know, could have been a Poirier round two knockout. So, I mean, Oliveira did a great job at capitalizing on the mistake of Poirier, but I also don't think, I mean, it was a far, far from flawless performance from Oliveira. Very, you know, you know, he went through a lot of adversity to get that win. So, uh, you know, th you can still take away a lot of negatives from Charles in that fight. Do you think there's anything to the accusations that Oliveira grabbed Dustin's glove? Um, when I was watching live, I was like, he, he grabbed the fucking glove. He grabbed it. But then I rewatched it and it looks like instead of like digging his fingers inside the glove, it was like a, around the wrist. So 
I think it was clean. It was just a, it was just a something that looked bad on camera, but I think it was clean. You touched on something which I think's been a big sort of narrative of the Charles Oliveira Renaissance, which is there was once upon a time where Charles Oliveira was defined by his the way that he was sort of collapsed when he faced any kind of adversity. Like we saw that when he uh, fought against Paul Felder twenty eighteen, which was his last loss, and yet these past two matches we've seen him dragged into very deep waters and come out the other side. Like Michael Chandler put him on it, put it on him very early in that fight. There was the guillotine attempt, and then he rocked him, and there was a bit of ground and pound, and then he came back second round knockout. And the same thing against Dustin Poirier. Dustin rocks him in like the first minute of that fight, and then he comes back to get the submission in the third. So that those sort of issues when it comes to composure that Charles Oliveira maybe had early in his career, those appear to be a thing of the past now. Yeah, I think he's definitely overcome that. I mean, he's done a tremendous job. I think the real turning point was the uh, David Tamer fight. I mean, Tamer put both of his fingers into uh, Oliveira's eyes, and his eyes were like purple when he was trying to recover. And I was watching that fight. I was like, there's no way Oliveira is going to continue to fight. And if he does, he's not going to win. But he got right back to work and, you know, finished that fight in the next round. So I think Oliveira has really, you know, you know, crush that narrative about you know kind of being a bit of a wilter or quitter at times he 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 really battles back from adversity well now i bet paul felder on commentary just loves the idea of the fact that he can just sit there and say i was the last guy to beat the lightweight champion yeah i know i definitely think so i think that's part of like he seems like he has one foot out the door like he kind of wants to come back and i think that reason why he comes back is because he's like, I, I beat the champion. I knocked him out, you know, viciously. I was the last guy to knock out the champion. You know, what can I still do? But, you know, I don't know. I, Paul, Paul's a smart guy. He's got a lot, a big career ahead of him. I hope he maybe just steps away for good. And he's been a fantastic broadcaster as well. Getting back on topic, though, we're going to talk about Justin Gagey here. 23-3 and record. His only losses coming against Eddie Alvarez, Dustin Poirier, Habib. So no shame in losing to any of those three. Uh, his most recent fight was against Michael Chandler, UFC 268, fight of the year contender. Based on what we saw in the Michael Chandler fight, does that make you more or less confident about his abilities going into this one against Charles? Uh, I'm more confident, honestly. Um, because that fight, he he absorbed some big shots. I mean, he's always been crazy durable. We know he's really durable. Um, and I think people after the Khabib fight just thought he was like a, some terrible defensive grappler who just gets instantly taken down. And, you know, I think so, some people are still thinking that about Oliveira's. Oh, Khabib was able to take him down, slice through him and submit him. Oliveira will do the same. But, I mean, I can't stress enough how much better of a wrestler that Khabib is than Oliveira. First, that's first of all. And... Um, Khabib also has a different style of fighting where instead of striking with Gaethje, he, he kind of stays as far away from Gaethje as he can. He doesn't really want to engage in those striking battles. And then when he finds the time, he shoots that takedown from a far distance. He gets that takedown. He transitions. Oliveira is a lot more willing to engage in the striking. We saw that versus Chandler and Poirier. He, he struck with both of them and then he tried to take and take them down. But as we saw in the Ch the Chandler versus Gaethje fight is Gaethje's takedown defense is actually a lot better than people gave it credit for. We hadn't seen a lot of that takedown defense because he hasn't grappled much over his career. But 
when Chandler shot those takedowns, I mean, Gaethje stuffed them. He His sprawl looked real good. He, stu- he got those double underhooks and stuffed that double leg takedown. So I think Gaethje's takedown defense is a lot better than people thought it was after the Khabib fight. And also as well, I think one of the sort of things that a lot of people are missing when it comes to this, the, the sort of painting is a quite a basic striker versus grappler battle when it's a lot more sophisticated than that. But I think what a lot of people are maybe missing about Charles Oliveira compared to Khabib is, as you mentioned before, a lot of Khabib's wrestling is based on double leg takedowns in open space. Whereas with Charles Oliveira, a lot of it is sort of like trips in the clinch and sort of like single legs, much more sort of, a lot more jujitsu based grappling rather than Khabib that was pure wrestling. And yet Gagey is fantastic in the clinch. That was one of his trademarks when he was in the WSOF, just the way he would brutalize the body with like knees and body shots um, to just slowly wear down his opponent. So if Charles does try to maybe make this into a clinch battle, Gagey's more than capable of holding his own. Yeah, but the clinch is going to be really exciting in this fight because uh, that's really where Oliveira does some of his best striking work. He gets that double double collar tie, nasty knees, nasty elbows from the clinch. And then uh, uh, Gaethje is just really skilled at, at boxing from the clinch. When you separate from the clinch, he's really good at catching with punches as you exit. So it, I'm really interested to see how these, these clinch battles go. And... Uh, I mean, I think the striking is going to pretty heavily favor Justin Gaethje, though. I mean, we still saw against um, Poirier that, that Oliveira's defensive boxing is, isn't is the best. His his chin still can be touched at times. And I think we're going to see Gaethje land some big shots here to the chin of Oliveira. And I'm, I, I don't... I don't see Oliveira being able to withstand them. I think that Gaethje is probably a harder puncher than Poirier and Chandler, even though we saw, uh, obviously, Poirier knock out Gaethje back in the day. But one-punch power, I think that Gaethje uh, is a harder hitter. And I think that we're going to see Gaethje land some hammers on Oliveira. We're going to see Oliveira do that thing where he he pulls guard, he takes a seat, um, and Gaethje just needs to disengage. You know, I, I'm sure Trevor Whitman is nailing this into his head over the training camp, but he can't engage. He can't follow up with ground and pound. Just let him stand back up and drop him again. And I think that this new patient version of Gaethje, where he's really taking his time, is going to be able to, to find the right punch punches um and then he's going to be able to eventually uh find that kill shot at some point and don't forget may might be a bit of a a mythical month for gaethje here back uh, in may of 2020 is when he was able to defeat ferguson um for the interim title over five rounds and it's almost two years to the day so uh that may justin gaethje might be a little bit of a mythical fighter right here is this Um, a new shit is this a new february Derek lewis Oh, that 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 curse broke. Remember that curse <laughs> broke. Um, yeah, that that had black that had Black History Month too. So there was a lot of of uh things going well for Lewis there. But I think uh, didn't Oliveira beat um Chandler in May too though? Yes, so that kind of yes. throws my theory out. Yeah, that kind of throws my uh, wrench in my theory there. But um, I, I trust Justin's takedown defense enough to stuff some early shots. I think he's the faster starter. He's gonna hurt. Uh, uh. Oliveira here early on and uh, I mean he was just in that high high pace fight with Chandler too and he was still sh- stuffing shots and landing shots in round three there so I feel like Gaethje can really fight at that that crazy pace for three rounds and uh, I think he's perfectly suited for that so uh, I like Gaethje in this fight I think both underdogs are winning I think we're hearing and new twice and another big concern when it comes to Oliveira as well is he has very very high guard 
So that's going to leave the body vulnerable. And we know what Justin Gagey can do with his body shots and working the legs as well. Yeah, some nasty leg kicks, some of the best in the game, great body shots. And I feel like Oliveira is going to be in a world of trouble here on the feet. And um, and Gaethje, I think, just has to stuff a few shots. And I think it's going to get a lot harder for, for Oliveira to do anything with that offense. So uh, a 10 out of 10 fight, A-plus fight. You got the two best lightweights in the world right now going at it. And, I mean, you know, props to the UFC for making this fight. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, maybe we'll see Islam down the road get the next shot. Um, not really so much so looking forward to that. Oh, we got Benil Daryush in the mix too. So I was going um, to say he has to get through my boy Betty first. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think inevitably next year this time we're going to be talking about Islam Mahachev as the champion, which won't be too exciting to me, but inevitably I think he will get that belt. But for now, I think Gaethje's getting uh, the belt wrapped around his waist. So what's your pick for the fight? I think this is a very, very close fight. And I think the, the bookmakers have done a good job making it as close as they did. I think, like you mentioned before, I think, think striking advantage-wise, this is an... There's no question. Gagey is by a long way the better striker between the two. I just think there's so many more ways for Charles Oliveira to win this fight that I would give him the edge. I think that... Because as good as Justin Gagey's takedown defense is, we did see how vulnerable he is when he is finally on his back. And I think all it needs is for one clean Charles Oliveira takedown, and it could very easily wrap him up. So I'm going to lean towards Charles Oliveira. I'm going to say fourth round RNC. I'll go with the second round KO for Justin the highlight Gagey. And that is all the time that we have for the UFC 274 preview show. Um, I have to say, John, uh, this has been a bit of a truncated preview show. Obviously, we had all the tech issues earlier on in the program. Hopefully, fingers crossed, they have all been believed, or else you'll just be seeing uh, a blank screen or whatever in front of you. Um, but I have to say, John, the the t- the main, the core main, and the feature fight between Ferguson and Chandler, very intriguing matchups for their own respective reasons rest of the card some question marks about it but it's one of the stronger ufc outings so far this year would you would you say yeah i i'd say eight out of ten is my rating for it obviously you got the uh, you know 10 out of 10 fight uh on the top you got carlo versus rose which is pretty much as good as women's mma gets uh i'm looking forward to chandler you know uh brutalizing tony osp shogun that'll be depressing maybe you know uh, have a smoke break or something like that uh during that fight and then lozon versus uh, Cerrone will be a lot of fun too so really fun card i'm looking forward to it a lot on saturday night and i hope everybody enjoys it as well And if you want more information about not only these five main card fights, as well as everything else on the prelims, John will be doing a full breakdown on his own personal channel. John, once again, where is the best place for people to find you? So you can catch the uh, the Martian and Ozzy podcast. Uh, me and my boy Ozzy break down all UFC fights from a betting perspective. You can search Martian and Ozzy or Martian MMA on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or Spotify to try to find our podcast and follow me on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC. And uh, thank you all for listening in. Thank you all uh, on the INC Live channel and Carl for having me. And uh, hope you all enjoy the fights next weekend.
certainly so and thank you very much for tuning in for this preview show um obviously obviously uh the latest member of our team joe neal he'll be back in just a couple of days time to do his recap of rob font versus cheeto viva which promises to be an exciting matchup uh we've also got some fighter interviews coming up which uh, i always love doing those and for our next preview show we will be back in june where we'll be talking about ufc 275 the ufc's first ever pay-per-view in singapore valentina shevchenko versus tyler santos that coming just before the main event glover Teixeira making his first ever defense at 42 years old he'll be taking on yivi prohovska this is the INC. My name's been Carl Bimage. That's been John Martian. Thank you very much once Peace. again for joining us.